From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 198 of the Killing It podcast i'm carl joined today by dave and ryan as always and uh it's a just a beautiful day and we just spent an hour just talking about stuff that we're not going to cover in the show exactly but you didn't want to listen anyway trust us Uh, i'll kick us (laughs) off with a fun question have you ever met your doppelganger not really although there's one person in our community who i won't name but her husband frequently Facebook will tag him as me. <laughs> so just sort of doing the, the facial recognition thing. So I don't think he looks like me. She doesn't think he looks like me. That's all a good thing. But Facebook thinks he looks like me. See, I, I have been told for many, many years that I have two doppelgangers in this world. One is uh, Matthew Perry, but it wasn't Matthew Perry of today. It was Chandler Bing. And uh, a number of people have come up to me after uh, speaking engagements and asked, could Ryan sound any more like Chandler Bing? And uh, and I've never met him, but I, I have actually heard and I agreed with that one, right? The other one is Brendan Fraser. Right, you know, of mummy fame and whatever. I can see that um, one for you, Ryan. That one, uh, <laughs> I, and and I was at an event where he was at, but I didn't get to meet him. I came this close, but uh, but I, I prefer to think of myself as the mummy Brendan Fraser and not the latest iteration of the six hundred pound guy, uh, Brendan Fraser. So I'm gonna go with that one. So my answer is no, but yes, and this is what I mean by that. so. So the answer is no. I've never never had like somebody that says like, oh, you look exactly like that, except. When I went, uh, when I moved to London as a kid and enrolled in a new school, in my grade was another David Soap. Wow. And ca- which caused much confusion for this because we were in the same grade. Now we did not look the same at all. Uh, and the the school had to sol- wanted to solve this by having because he'd already been there. They wanted me to go by my middle name, to which my parents protested. Uh, because they said we're not going to rename our son, who's right. been, da- you know, David. David. Because the it's inconvenient time. for uh, you, right? So I, I actually went by David Paul for a, for a period of time, of which my friends called me DP for the uh, the three years when I was abroad. And the moment I came back, I went right back to I am Dave. Like, <laughs> I reclaimed <laughs> that. Uh, but I had a period of time in middle school where I was DP because uh, there was well, you know, uh, there's two. Two Dan Tomaszewskis in our community, and nobody seems to have any problem keeping them straight. Exactly, <laughs> and, and and the other David Sobel and I are Facebook. Oh, well, there so you go. <laughs> you got You got to do that cosmically speaking. <laughs> well, PCmatic is endpoint security built on a zero trust default deny foundation. Finally, a lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing the perfect complement to your current security stack. No minimums and no annual contracts. Find out more by visiting pcmatic.com slash MSP today. 
Excellent. Let's dive into our first topic, guys. So over the last several weeks, a month or so, we've been having conversations about generative AI and about the things we can do with text prompts, whether it is for text replies or visual images. Uh, we're all very familiar with how fast they are advancing and how uh, legitimately impressive some of the output actually is. In the show notes, we're going to link to an article here from TechCrunch that talks about similar advancements that are going on in China as either independent businesses or independent slash state sanctioned businesses over in China are making equally aggressive and impressive advancements, right? You know about DAL-E and about stable diffusion, but are you familiar with Ernie? Right, Ernie is the Chinese version, and if you use them, they come up with reasonably equal, technologically advanced, non-discernible responses, right? We can still identify certain flaws in there, but uh, the place where I want to kind of ask you guys a question is, Generative AI, that's all fun and games when it's over here. But what about when the other guys get into the game and the Chinese start making state-sanctioned investments into those kinds of technologies as well? Does that change our opinion on whether or not this technology is safe? No. And I'm actually going to say, so, so because uh, I'll look at that and say, first off, the risks have always been the same. And the act, there are always bad actors, right? So, so, and that's universal. That's essentially universal. They can use our version. They can use their own version. There's always a, there's always bad actors. And I don't, so I don't think it's actually changed anything from that perspective. And I think you should always generally assume that the competitor, and I'm putting that in an intentionally generic set of quotes, vaguely, the competitor always has the tools. The tools are never what makes it. It's always the application of the tools. Uh, this has been a universal thing, and I think it's exactly going to be that from an AI perspective. The ability to apply it and use it is, is that's the difference, not the tool itself. And you should assume that the other side has the tool. Now, does this mean that we need to be more attuned to disinformation, fact, dis, you know, dis, uh, misleading information, misleading pictures? Well, no, because that's a thing we should have already been doing, right? This is something we should already be focused on. And there's a certain degree of like media literacy in general is the solution to the threats of a good portion of generative AI. Is that you? if you are a smart thinker and ask good questions and follow up and check on research and check on sources, you will do far better than those that don't. I would just bring back the, the one thing that we've talked about with AI since the beginning, three over three years ago, and that is we always have to deal with the ethics. And with AI, the, at least in the U.S., we always sort of feel like uh, it's got to be kept under check because it's either going to be biased with regard to race, creed, color, uh, you know, something that's going to make us very, very uncomfortable when it's unchecked. China's will be unchecked in different directions and in different ways. And so I think it's, again, it's just something we need to be hyper aware of. Now, they are very good at clamping down on anything that doesn't fit their version of what a good citizen should be. And so if you're developing 
whatever kind of AI and it somehow violates their rules, then you lose some of your citizenship points and may not be able to travel to the next city for Christmas or whatever. Uh, so, but, but I think we need to be hyper aware of what effects that has. And I don't think we're, I don't think we're currently aware of that because we're not seeing enough of it to, uh, you know, do the research that points out where the inherent biases lie within Chinese AI versus our AI. We're actually getting pretty good at where the biases are with our, within our own. Uh, we just don't know where they are within the Chinese. And by the way, they're being already more aggressive about censorship into the into theirs than we are with ours. So in a way, like there's a lot of use cases that are not even going to come of theirs because of central. But control. some of that censorship isn't about diminishing bias. It's censorship about oh, don't say anything bad about the government. <laughs> don't say anything bad about certain things. Or, or not say for work content, exploitative content. Like there's, there's these areas where our free expression approach allows that, where the Chinese version is being much more controlled. See, and and I'll take this back in a, in, in a different direction, right? Again, we'll hearken back to a conversation that we've had here on this podcast about the splinter net and about whether or not it is reasonably possible to maintain a globally integrated place of free exchange for information, for commerce, etc. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why there are trends toward splinter net where we do not believe that ours is going to be uh, we're not going to behave the same we're not going to have the same technological capabilities or access here as as they do in the far east what i will say for sure is that uh this ai conversation is accelerating those decisions and it's gotten us back into a protectionist mindset from not just ai but the hardware and the just the guts of the machines that are necessary to do all of these things. Uh, you'll remember that recently our government put a limit on the export of certain very high-end graphics processing chips that are needed for the machine learning and the training associated with an AI algorithm. The math associated with these things is absolutely mind-boggling, right? The one of the models that they're talking about in China is a it's trained on literally everything, but it considers for any response a set of 10 billion variables to give you a single query and response. That's not something you can do on your laptop. That's not something you're gonna do on a workstation. You're gonna need great big horsepower. As of now, the Chinese are saying that they have enough and then some for uh, chip inventory that they've already acquired and they, they won't need to buy anymore. But you know that this is going to accelerate some divisions where American-based companies would love to access the Chinese markets to sell their wares, and the government's going to come in and go, yeah, no, we're drawing a line in the sand, and that's no longer an accessible marketplace because the stuff you sell, ironically, is too advanced and too powerful, and we can't have the other guy have access to that. I think, Carl... From a software perspective, the ethics are very interesting. From a protectionist perspective, I think the ethics are even more challenging. I think it would be interesting to see what the cultural biases are. To be to ask the same question, right, of GPT chat and whatever the Virgil or whatever it is, and, and just see, you know, what 
what the differences are. So that that will be an evolving story, I think, over time. Uh, and God knows what it means for the fake universe that is created by AI when you let it loose. <laughs> well, I'm going to move us into topic number two then to keep us on time here because we cannot solve that one. Last pass. So we're going to break. We're, we're not going to dive into a discussion of the technical merits of of what they did. I actually want to want to get your reactions. At a larger level, so LastPass kind of you know has had had a breach incident back in August. They made some additional announcements in December, and it leaves you in a position of of questioning a lot. And I'll tell you my bias: I'm a LastPass customer, right? So that's my own one. Is is I now have to make a decision around this, and and I want to ask the larger question of what is your expectation around security vendors and what will drive you to switch vendors is that a question about security vendors or all vendors i'm specifically targeting security here because i think their their communication requirements are a little different well i think clearly the there should be some limit on the <laughs> the time between their knowledge of a breach and they're making it public. And even if they only told their partners and not the rest of the world, um, if it's not something that the, the FBI has told them to keep quiet or something like that, I think that the breach acknowledgement needs to be far more timely, especially, I mean, passwords are particularly bad, but anything related to, hey, we're providing you with security and we've got a breach, it's just, it seems bizarre. You know, it's funny because Recently, there was some discussion about, oh, you know, there's this regulation where they, they want to make MSPs report any violations or any problems. And I was talking to somebody who's outside of our market but does security um, at a Christmas party. And he said, the norms in our industry is that if we have a security breach, we tell anybody we can as fast as possible. And so it's bizarre to think that you are discussing whether or not you would report a breach. Of course you report a breach. If you don't, you lose your job. <laughs> you know, And so that sort of behavior is kind of what I would expect from vendors as well as their employees. See, and I'll go back on that point, Carl, because Dave, you've made the comment before about um, are we really trying to solve the security problem or are we just selling the treatment for the symptoms of the security problem, right? Uh, the old adage goes, there's way more money in treating the common cold than there is in curing the common cold. I think, Carl, what you've just highlighted is the, the conflict of interest from a security vendor's point of view. If there is a breach, that is a situational conversation, but it is also an underlying tools and technology conversation. Was the breach the result of bad user implementation or behavior, or was it a vulnerability or a failure of the underlying technology? And until people can get to the point of very clear distinction of what was the root cause of these things, um, we're never ever going to get people to just openly disclose what's going on because nobody wants to take blame for these kinds of things. I, I will say again, I have I have no horse in in this race, and I will very openly say that behavior indicates motivation. And if there was back in August a discovery of a breach that was then updated in November, that was then further updated with the bad news, quote unquote, in December on a dump on a Friday right before a holiday, uh, uh, that smells like they're not 
openly, eagerly disclosing that situation, which makes me say, why not? That suggests that there's probably something going on. It leads me to a to a higher standard of expectation. I believe there are legal and and you know, regulatory requirements associated with disclosure. But I believe that the practitioner's point of view should be as close to the beginning of my available time as disclosure, as opposed to as close to the end of the acceptable. And I think that if it's, well, you must do it within seven days. If you know what's going on and you know that this is a, a disclosure that needs to be made and you don't make it until six days, 23 hours, 39 minutes, et cetera, et cetera, that's not okay. I believe we need to just fundamentally default to the other end of the spectrum. And it doesn't appear that that's what happened in this situation. So I want to make, because I want to make two sets of comments on this. The first is, is I agree completely, like crisis management particularly applies in security and it is over communicate it is you know be transparent it is overcorrect like those are that is always crisis management in all industries in security it's even i think it's even more important uh, but where i want to actually like cuz cuz so i'll look and say like i think that's the number one thing that will cause you to leave a vendor is when you can't trust them because of communication i will understand that mistakes happen i know this space isn't great now, what I also want to push back, though, is, is in this space, there's also a bunch of researchers that are now making a bunch of statements that aren't helping, that actually they think they are, right? They think because they're making a whole bunch of like, well, this is problematic, and this is problematic, and that's problematic, and there's this theoretical. They're not actually giving any actionable advice and direct statements about the situation. It's all theoretical. And this is one of the, my, my general complaints about things in the security space too often, is I get the idea of risk management and understanding that nothing is perfect and there's not zero or one in these cases. It is shades of gray. But you know what, researchers, you're not giving me anything actionable. You are not coming out and saying it has violated some threshold, that there is that you've not given me your professional opinion. You are just talking about all the theoreticals that might happen. And me, the customer who has to live in the real world of action, is left without enough information to make a decision. Well, and you know, that points out messaging. And this is an interesting area where <laughs> security breaches are a little bit like another industry. There's one industry that has figured out what their messaging is going to be when something hits the fan, and that is the nuclear industry. They know what they're going to tell the media. They know exactly the words they're going to use, the order in which they say things. They know the, the top five messages they want to get across, right? They've known that for 50 years, right? And, and yet in security, nobody seems to be prepared to let the media help them tell their side of the story. So this has nothing to do with the last pass per se, but just vendors in general, anybody who's in security should be able to go down the path of saying, what happens if this breach happens? What happens if this breach happens? What happens if this breach happens? And prepare the messaging, not to manipulate the public, but to inform them. Because when the media don't know what they're talking about, they make shit up, right? And then they, they turn to somebody else and say, what do you think? And the expert who's never heard of LastPass says, well, uh, clearly this is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. It's like, uh, uh. 
So, you know, they need an education and some of that education has to come from the vendors who actually understand the technology and can put it in terms that non-technical people can understand. I want to, and I want to dive in here because what, what, vendor, what a lot of this space forgets, and this is true in technology, is humans communicate in stories. They tell stories and stories have a beginning, a middle and an end, right? <laughs> right? They, you have to have a story to go along with it. And when you get into all of these theoretical open-ended things, you have not closed the story for me. You have you have left me in the middle of the plot where the hero the hero or the villain right and then I'm just filling it but but I'm not actually able to do anything until I reach the conclusion of the story. Yes, well, and and to put this back into very sharp relief for our audience, what you just described, Carl, is a billable service opportunity that every MSP slash MSSP in the world ought to be engaging with your clients locally directly. If the industry does not know how to disclose, how to announce, how to follow up, how to tell an effective story, you guys will notice none of this has to do with the code inside LastPass or any other vendor. This is about the business practice that we use, specifically communication around the application of a technology tool. That is something that should be planned. It should be documented. It should be trained. It should be managed, as Dave says, in the crisis environment, right? That's a service that as an industry, we need to go and provide to our customers because every single one of them is in the position of potentially needing to announce a security breach tomorrow. And if all they can say to the news media is, uh, 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 you just, you just lost all credibility. And that's, that's some malpractice on our part as service. Well, and if you prepare for a future that never happens, you really haven't wasted your time in this case. <laughs> Topic number three, we're going to fast forward uh, into the future. So we're, we're going to point to an article by Axios regarding intelligent elevators, which are coming soon. And, and this is intelligence along the lines of using the technologies we love to talk about here. Facial recognition will say, oh, oh, you're staying on the 14th floor. Here, let us get you there so you don't have to put all your bags down in order to push the button. Uh, or knowing that uh, you need towels uh, on the third floor or whatever. These elevators are going to be able to do all kinds of fun things. I think the only piece of this that's actually useful is going to be, as Dave loves to, to say, the voice activation. To be able to just tell the elevator, just like on Star Trek, you know, that you want to go to the 14th floor. And uh, the rest of it is sort of like interesting and fun technology that really is not going to change the world. I also put a link in here to a book called Faster by a guy named James Gleick, and he's got an entire chapter on elevators and how there's many features of the elevators that for the last 50 years have been disabled so that we don't kill each other, right? Most elevators, the closed door button is disabled, so you don't cut somebody else's arm off because people will. And they know that. Uh, they well, you're almost you're glazing, you're glazing over horizontal elevators, which are covered <laughs> in here too. We are achieving the Star Trek turbo lift, where it goes up and down and sideways at the same. Well, only at the Luxor. <laughs> <laughs> 
like so so this th there's a couple of bits in here first off i you know i look at this and i say like i love it like we love the idea of automating this kind of stuff as, as a guy who leans in on home automation i love the idea of removing this kind of this and using the data points that are available to make intelligent decisions and help with routing i will observe that there are there are systems in elevators in hotels in particular that have done this kind of efficiency. Have you ever been in one of those elevators or those hotels where you have to put in your floor and a keypad and then it routes you to a particular elevator? It's my experience that yes, that 100% works better. Except for all the confusion of the humans who don't know what this is, they're used to, and they're not used to this difficult bit, and it's very confusing, right? Where everyone is trying to figure out how to use this system because they have a very ingrained way of using the technology that then gets disrupted. Uh, I look at this and I say, that's the area to highlight and say, like, look, the confusion is that it, when people are not used to something and it is abnormal, it does not achieve its full level of efficiency because you've done something that confuses the users. You've got to make sure to remember that, and this principle applies to everything, you've got to remember that in the design to make sure that you're not making the situation worse. See, and guys, one thing that I will point out here is that these are not these are not AI type conceptualizations. These are not metaverse hypotheticals. These are four very specific manufacturers who have designed, developed, and prototyped physical equipment to perform these specific tasks. This stuff is actually coming. And I will highlight three things that I think are particularly interesting in this, uh, in this article. Number one is the idea of just facial recognition for automatic routing. I think that that's actually super smart, but it gets more smart when it integrates beyond the elevator into the, the old cliche of the smart city, if I can get in the elevator and it knows, Dave goes down the elevator at 7.30 on a Monday morning. That means he's probably going to work. So A, when he gets on, we know where to take him. And B, we're going to pre-order a taxi for him when he walks out of the building. And therefore, traffic inside and outside the building is going to be streamlined. I think that's very, very interesting as a use case. There's a VIP mode that they're talking about, right? Imagine an office building where you and I and all the other plebes are getting on and off the elevator. But the CEO wants to take a trip down, and he really, really doesn't want to get an elevator pitch from anyone else. The elevator can recognize there's a VIP. We will recognize him, route a car to that individual, empty it of other people, bring it directly to him, and it won't stop to pick anybody else up. Instant private elevator ride. I think that's one some of us might pay money for, especially in a COVID-based world. The third one, and you guys, you have to know that this is where this is going. Um, one of the facial recognition applications of this technology is personalized media once you get into the elevator. Dave wants to see the weather report, so we're going to give Dave the weather report. Carl wants to see some personalized advertising, so we're going to tell Carl, hey, this is where you can get this pair of shoes, and I'm going to say, Minority, Minority Report. Report. Dang it. That is exactly you, where we're going. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually not allowed to reference Minority Report. You're not allowed to reference Minority Report again. I actually wanna I wanna push back on a on a risk that happens in these VIP modes and this isolation mode where money creates another another avenue. Uh, we are continuing to invest in creating a society that stratifies us based on 
uh, income and other, you know, and other differentiating bits. I think there is value in people being forced at times to commingle uh, because that, because ultimately everyone goes to the bathroom the same way, right? There's a reason that's a cliche. People need to mix with people that don't necessarily look like them, sound like them, act like them. The elevator is one of those spaces. And I think if you're choosing to make a decision to separate out people, that has implications that I don't necessarily think are good. And I'm going to question, you know, particularly for uh, organizations that start investing in that, you may have downsides here that you may not have thought of. And I'm going to question that in, in your choice. And I would just say, I think all of this is just absurd that there are certain things like the mousetrap and the can opener that were done innovating. Like, I don't think any of this stuff would improve elevators or is worth spending a nickel on. Uh, I, for the most part, I rarely go to a building that is so tall that I care how long I wait for the elevator. I'm rarely in such a hurry that I need to go down four flights even faster than I do now. <laughs> or be served hot towels when I get to the bottom or have them call an Uber or whatever. Uh, Sir, I want hot towels. <laughs> well, then you push the hot towel button or you say, computer may have a hot towel, please. <laughs> although, although from the 72nd floor of the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia, down to the lobby, when you have a speaking engagement downstairs, and the elevator takes 35 minutes to pick you up and another 15 to get you to the bottom. That, that's something I didn't want to walk 72 flights of stairs. You cannot argue with the from the exception to the rule. Most buildings you go into are not even 10 stories tall. Exactly. <laughs> and well, and, and then there's the further question there's just that we'll leave everybody with on this topic, guys. Uh, that creates a data trail. Uh, you, you, if you can recognize my face when I get into an elevator and you know I live on the 12th floor, so bing, you're just going to automatically take me to the 12th floor. Who knows that? What do they do with that data? What are they allowed to do with that data? It brings, it brings up privacy questions and data ownership and local movement questions that we've discussed before around facial recognition, and it just multiplies them by the every single day things that you do in your life. Well, and a, one final little note, which is if you've been to Vegas, you know they don't have cameras in their elevators or in their hallways. So if somebody broke into your room, there's no evidence of who that was because they don't want evidence of certain things going on because what happens in Vegas has to stay there. So certainly they will not be adopting any of these elevators with all of the data tracking. And with that little bit of wisdom, we come to the end of episode 198 of the Killin' It! Killin' It! podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.